Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Greetings and salutations to all the faithful listeners out there and any new ones that are coming along. Today we're going to talk more about the Mosaic Law, and specifically we've been talking in the last couple episodes about theonomy and whether or not it's a accurate way to view the law and its application to believers. I have said I don't think it's a very good paradigm for applying the law, and I've given some reasons for that. And before we get into another one of the reasons today, which is going to be examples in the Old Testament where non-Israelites are not bound by the Mosaic law. And I think that that's an important thing to discuss. Before we get into that, I do want to acknowledge that there were some questions that came in from the last episode. And just a FYI, uh, I do uh, treasure and cherish the various communications that come through. And I don't respond to everybody Uh, because I don't have time for that, and I've been working on some other projects, but I have been trying to log all the questions that come through and associate them with episode ideas for the future. So I do apologize if I haven't gotten back to you, Uh, and some means of communication are better than others. I know some people have reached out uh, on social media and everything like that uh, through email, through the contact form on the website, and I do appreciate all of that, but I can't keep up on every single medium, so I usually pick and choose how to communicate and get back to people in a variety of time speeds. But I do appreciate uh, people listening and asking questions about the different episodes, and I am trying to keep a, a log of all these things. So there were some questions that came up specifically about last episode, and they help lead into this episode, so I wanted to just answer those right away. So one of the questions was just about the practical difference in the Mosaic Law, because I said that the Mosaic Law has transitioned from being a binding reality to the believer to a realm of wisdom. And that's uh, typically one of the phraseologies that Brian Rossner uses in his book on Paul and the Law. And I really like that idea. And so the question was, well, exactly what does that look like? Because if we think that something is wise... Isn't, doesn't that in and of itself become binding on us? So what's, what's the difference on that? And the way I would describe the difference is in terms of application. So the details themselves in the law are obviously not binding, but the principle becomes applicable. Yet even in applying the principle of the law, we do our best to, to understand, okay, how, how can we apply this in the wisest way? Even that, though, has variation. So other people are going to apply that differently. And for example, if you think about Deuteronomy 23, 24, and 25, uh, I think that that's a good law to, to give an illustration for this. It says there in the 23rd chapter, verse 24 and 25, it says, If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So those are the two verses back to back, which talk about how Israel, when when they are in the land and existing there, uh, there there needs to be a, a ethos of hospitality. 
And there needs to be, if you, if someone's coming through or if you're traveling and you're, you know, roads are kind of a modern thing in, in many ways. And so you would often even travel over people's land as you're going from one place to another. And so the law says, no, it's okay uh, to eat of your neighbor's produce as you're, as you're traveling. Uh, now think about, think about this though, in our modern setting as well, who, who of us has actual, uh, grape or, or grain fields now in the Midwest, that's, that's kind of a thing in, in many ways. Uh, there, there are actually fields and agricultural supply, obviously, but that doesn't apply to everybody. And I would also say that the, the principle behind the law is not bound to the letter of law itself. So I think that there are other ways to apply this in, instead of just saying like, okay, you know, whatever you want to eat out of my field, you can do that. You just can't put any in your backpack. Well, in some settings, what about all the insecticides and things that are sprayed on the, on, on the materials? I mean, somebody could be in danger actually in eating some, some of the materials straight from fields just because they need to be washed and cleaned and things like that. So applying the letter of the law wouldn't, wouldn't actually work. Uh, in today's culture, nor are we mandated to do that. But the principle itself can be applicable that we are to be hospitable. We are to sh be showing goodwill, not selfish, obviously, in trying to help people out. But the way that that works could look differently, right? We have a cash society now. So if you see a brother or sister traveling through town and they're, they're on their way somewhere else, you could say, Hey, here's, here's a hundred bucks you know, uh, it'll help you pay, pay for some gas and, and some food on the way. And I just want to help you that way. Uh, being hospitable, that would be a completely appropriate, applicable, uh, aspect of this law where we're, we're helping our neighbors as, as they're traveling, as they're moving from place to place. That's, that's how we could do that. But our, now here's the, here's the thing about not being binding though, is that, we are not bound to, to do this in a specific way. So we are not bound to give cash. We are not bound to give uh, a specific amount of cash. Uh, you could take somebody out to eat. You could do it in a variety of ways. The point, of course, is that there is flexibility and variation in how we apply some of these scenarios. An illustration of this would just be with regard to wisdom literature in general. In Proverbs 13, 22, it says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Okay. So this is a wisdom principle. And it says, you know, if you're a good man, you know, there's going to be an inheritance to your grandchildren just because that's, that's what you're going to be working toward. But how does he do this? It doesn't say, uh, would that be animals? Would that be cash? Well, not originally, but, but how would we apply that? Would we think of it as cash? What about stocks? What about, uh, real estate? You know, what about bonds? You know, there are lots of different ways that you could give an inheritance. You could have the best stamp collection in the world. You know, I don't know. Uh, it's not my cup of tea, but there are a lot of different ways that this could be applied, right? So you can't bind somebody in one application of this, right? You can't say, oh, if you are not storing up cash in a bank account for your children's children, you are in sin. No, it could be in a variety of ways that you're taking care of your, your children and your grandchildren, uh, 
and so so we're not we're not bound to the letter of holding one specific item. Now, by the way, another uh, idea of this or application is: Are you in sin if you don't leave an inheritance to your grandchildren? Well, no, not necessarily. And that's that's the difference between wisdom and the law, basically, is you have wisdom where saying this is how it should work, but there are extenuating circumstances. And some laws actually work that way too, but that's another discussion for another time. But law typically is saying this is what's right, this is what's wrong, this is what it needs to look like. Uh, but I would actually argue that the reason the laws are often similar to wisdom literature is because some of those laws, uh, there are exceptions to that. And that'll be another episode we'll look at where there are actually specific narratives in the Old Testament where laws are broken, but with God's authorization. And so I think that that's helpful to think about. So when you think about it, I guess when, you, when you're thinking about the idea of between what is binding and what is applicable, I guess maybe an illustration would be the, the speed limits. And you might be in a city or in, in a town where the speed limit is technically 55 miles an hour. And in the 55 mile an hour speed limit, uh, if you go over that, you are breaking the letter of the law, right? If you go 60 miles an hour in a 55, you're technically speeding. But that standard, that letter of the law, does not apply to you out of that jurisdiction. So if you're in another state, another another county, another town, whatever, uh, you might run across a speed limit that is 35, or you might run across a speed limit that is 70. Now, the broad application of speed limit laws is that you should drive safely, keep your vehicle under control, and that's obviously something that we should always be trying to apply. But the letter of the law may change from place to place, time to time. We're not bound to the the laws of a certain uh, jurisdiction uh, at all places, all times, right? Uh, but the the principle can apply in a variety of standards. If you're going through a town, you, it'll make sense that you're going to apply the principle and say, okay, I need to, given the circumstances around here, drive much more slowly than if I'm going across Montana where there's nothing in sight for 70,000 miles, right? So that's that's kind of how we ought to view this is that the, the details are not binding. The letter of the law isn't binding, but there is an application which definitely applies and and that can vary from situation to situation. And that in and of itself, we could use that term that that's binding. The reality is, though, that sometimes uh, it's going to look different for from individual to individual. So on a personal conscience level, of course, I'm going to be bound by my conscience in how I am applying this. And, but that's not going to look the same for every individual. And so that's that's part of how we work through those things. So that's one thing I think that's helpful to think about. Now, another question was asked as well with regard to the last episodes we were talking about how I think it's fallacious to divide the Mosaic Covenant into three parts. And a lot of times people want to divide it into moral, civil, ceremonial, but I just don't see that. I don't think scripture talks about it that way. And so the question came up and I, I really like this question because the question is, well, how are, how are we to view circumcision then? Because it seems that circumcision is related to the Abrahamic covenant more so than the Mosaic covenant. So how do we explain Paul's discussions of, you know, circumcision is nothing, you know, we're getting rid of that. If we're tying in the law to the Mosaic covenant, um, how does circumcision relate to this? 
Now, again, this is a very complex topic, and I actually have it on the future episodes to do a full-blown episode, maybe even a couple on circumcision, because I've been doing some research on it for another project, which I'll announce at some point on the podcast. But one of the things to keep in mind when we're talking about about this is that everything with regard to the Mosaic Covenant, that would include the Sabbath, uh, the, the ceremonial laws, I'm using that distinction loosely because that's what a lot of other people will use, uh, the sacrificial system, everything that's tied into the Mosaic Law Code, which includes the Ten Commandments, it includes sacrificial literature, it includes clean and unclean animals, all of that stuff is done away with when the new covenant replaces the Mosaic covenant. Okay, that's that's my thesis. That's, that's how I would argue that. And yet, um, when we talk about circumcision, there there's a clarification that we need to make because circumcision, although it's included twice in Mosaic literature in Numbers 12 and also in Leviticus, uh, just mentioned offhand, it's not... Um, it's not prevalent in Mosaic covenant literature. It's just assumed that as, as Israel is applying Mosaic law, they will also apply their ethnic identity marker of circumcision, which, uh, which we talk about. So we'll, we'll have another episode on some of those connections later, but in the new Testament, Paul is very adamant against circumcision, but we need to remember that it's with, with the caveat that it's always being talked about with forcing it upon Gentiles, okay, not Jews. So it was assumed that Jews would always be circumcised. Uh, Gentiles, according to Paul, were never to be forced to be circumcised. Um, and and this is this is important. Acts sixteen is a good example of this because because P- Paul circumcises Timothy in Acts sixteen. And the reason for that is because that would have been the expectation. I, I mean, it would be too strange to be it otherwise. Uh, Timothy is, his mother was a Jew. And so he needed to embrace that Jewish identity to have missional impact among the Jews. But interestingly enough, uh, Paul says to Titus, um, uh, T- uh, Titus doesn't get circumcised. Paul, Paul uh, doesn't allow Titus to get circumcised, doesn't, doesn't advise that, doesn't move forward with that because Titus is a Gentile. And so there's, there's, uh, it would, it'd be detrimental in Paul's view to, to have Titus be circumcised as a Gentile, um, and confuse the issue. But there's really no indication in scripture that Paul was against Jews being circumcised. So the clarification here is that the debate in the New Testament was whether or not, I mean, this is Acts 15. This is what the entire council was about. Uh, do Gentiles need to be circumcised in adding them to, to the church? And as, as you work through the issue, obviously they decide, no, we don't need to force Gentiles to be circumcised. But the assumption, the foregoing assumption of those at that council and of the church is that Jews will continue to be circumcised, even those Jews who are a part of the church. And some people kind of balk at that. And they say, now, is that true? Like, I'm, I'm not sure about that. But th- there's an interesting passage that often gets neglected with regard to this issue. And that's in Acts 21. And in Acts 21, verses 21 through 25, uh, you have 
James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, talking to Paul. And so Paul comes to Jerusalem. So this is uh, Luke giving the account of he and Paul coming to Jerusalem. So in verse 17, he says, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Okay. So this is Acts 21. And then in verse 18, it says on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. Okay. So James and the elders of the Jerusalem church are getting the updates as to what Paul's doing. And in verse 19, it says, after greeting them, he related one by one, the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And so Paul is giving a great update on how God has been saving Gentiles through his ministry. And notice how they respond in verse 20. When they heard it, they glorified God and they said to him, um, now here's, here's the interesting thing. Okay. So they're glorifying God that, that, that Gentiles are being saved as Gentiles. And now remember the Jerusalem council has already happened. Acts 15, this is Acts 21. And notice what they say now. They're saying, this is so good that Gentiles are being saved. And so now they they tell Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So there are believers also of the Jews. You have Gentiles, you have Jews, and there are thousands of Jews that have believed. And notice what James says here. He says, they are zealous for the law and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. So in other words, James is saying, hey, Paul, there's a rumor out there. There's a rumor out there that you're telling the Jews among the Gentiles out there. When you're, when you're ministering to the Gentiles, you're telling the Jews that they're not supposed to circumcise their children or walk according to the Jewish customs. So that's a pretty uh, lofty charge. That That's a pretty hefty charge. Uh, and so notice what James says here in verse 22 and 23. He says, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expense and sh- and so that they may shave their heads. Now, this is the whole point of what James is saying here at the end of verse 24. He says, thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Okay. So now this is interesting because you really have to have to consider what's going on in this passage. You either have to say James is wrong here, that he's, he's in sin by telling Paul to do this. Or Paul and James are wrong in going through with it. I guess that's also an option. Or I think the more likely conclusion here is that James is uh, is doing what is right and wise, and Paul is doing what is right and wise here, saying, "Yeah, we need to correct their assumption that I that I'm attacking uh, the Jewish identification and way of life." And so, so Paul here goes through with this. Um, in, a, in an attempt to show the Jews that I'm not attacking the, the Jewish um, right to circumcision. I'm not attacking this, saying you can't do these things. Of course, that is, as your right in being a Jew, you, you have this opportunity to keep, uh, I mean, God has given you as a nation this opportunity, right? So I think that that's the best way to interpret that. 
And a lot of people just bypass this in the whole discussion. They, they go quickly to Galatians, uh, Ephesians, and they say, well, look, Paul says that, you know, circumcision accounts for nothing, you know, and whatever. And yes, Paul does say that, but Paul's talking primarily to enemies who are trying to make everyone circumcised because they view it as some sort of righteous standard. So, of course, circumcision has nothing to do with salvation or sanctification. But it seems to me, at least, that there is uh, a retaining uh, importance among the Jewish nation for circumcision. Now, again, does that mean any Gentile um, should should be forced to be circumcised or anything like that? No, I'm not saying that at all. But I'm, and nor would I say that a a Jew who decides to get circumcised is somehow attaining salvation or somehow advancing in sanctification. I wouldn't be saying that either. But what I am saying is that in Genesis 17, this was an ethnic sign that was given to all the generations of Abraham's ethnic descendants that they would circumcise their children. And so um, in reading up on this over the last uh, couple of years, um, there have been a couple people who have been helpful on, on this. And Arnold Fruchtenbaum, some of you might be familiar with him. He's one of the uh, most well-known authors talking about, you know, future for Israel and, and Israel's uh, retaining of their importance in God's plan. He He talks about this with regard to the continuing sign of circumcision among the Jewish population, um, with regard to showing the the fact that they 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 want to be faithful to God and they, and they're thankful and appreciative of being part of God's chosen people. So that's how he explains the conti- continuing relevance of circumcision to the Jewish nation. But again, it has nothing to do with salvation. Doesn't have anything to do with sanctification. It's it's it literally would just be the sign of God's special. Uh, placing his favor upon Israel. Now, that would be one way to interpret it. So, so in one sense, we could say circumcision is still applicable to Jews. Um, Gentiles would never have to be circumcised at all. Um, they could, uh, but but it, they are not mandated to be circumcised. And so we could interpret it that way, saying it's still applicable for Jews who choose to embrace the command to show a sign of God's faithfulness to them. That would be what Arnold Fruchtenbaum would talk about, or you could take an alternative view, which I think is is possible. But I again, I I lean more toward what I just talked about. An alternative viewpoint would be that there would be a setting aside of the Jewish identity marker uh, while the time of the Gentiles continues, and that's entirely possible. Obviously, we are in the time of the Gentiles, not not in um, the time of Israel, as Israel is in exile. They're in timeout. You know, they they're sent to their room, as it were. And there, there have been times throughout Israel's history where entire generations do go without circumcision. For example, Joshua 5 talks about the, the generation that wandered in the wilderness uh, not circumcising their children. And so you have uh, for 40 years then essentially circumcision not being practiced in Israel. And so that's a, a possibility as well. And, you know, either of those would be consistent with the biblical picture. Right. Uh, the big the big point would be to emphasize with Paul that circumcision does not attribute to salvation or sanctification. But if a if a Jew wants to be circumcised and identify with the fact that God has chosen the people of Israel and that they retain a specialness under the Abrahamic covenant, well, I think that would be completely within um, their right. Now, one of the interesting things that I think a lot of people kind of ignore is that overall the Jewish population is still 
circumcised. So it would be going against the grain of the culture to not be circumcised as as a Jew. In fact, I just looked up recent statistics just because this question, as I was thinking about it, and the Eastern world, Muslim uh, Muslim populations, Jewish populations are largely circumcised. So according to the population health metrics that I was able to track down, uh, when I was looking through the different countries, I mean, Iran is said to have 100% uh, circumcision rate, Iraq 99%. West Bank is listed as 99%, Yemen 99%, Indonesia 93%, Syria 93%, Israel 92% circumcised. So circumcision is a very big part of this culture, right? And so usually it's going to be among the very secular Jewish population where where circumcision wouldn't, wouldn't really be an issue, where they would say, oh, we're going to buck that trend or whatever. But I think it's important to acknowledge that uh, even among the Jewish population now, it's still viewed as a part of their identity. I think many of them don't understand why it's a part of their identity. But for Messianic congregations, which I've had the opportunity to talk to certain Messianic Jewish believers, they they do cling to their circumcision as a pointing to the fact that God has chosen Israel as a special nation, not as a mark of some special elite spiritual status, but just in remembrance of what God has done with Abraham. And I think that that's, that's completely appropriate. Uh, certainly, scripture seems to embrace that with how Paul treats circumcision in Acts 21, in in talking with those in Jerusalem and backing backing James up, but then also in Acts 16 where he circumcises Timothy. I think that those are completely appropriate. So I think it's 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 good in in our discussion to talk about those things. And like I said, there's more to talk about on circumcision, and in a future episode, Lord willing, we will have much more to talk about with regard to that. Okay, so I want to keep talking now about what we've been talking about with regard to theonomy and the use of law and things like that. And one of the things I want to touch on now is really the question, was the Mosaic law meant to apply to non-Israelites? So was the Mosaic law meant to apply to non-Israelites? And obviously, if you're a theonomist, you would have to say yes, because in theonomy, the law is, according to Bonson, in its exhaustive detail, meant to govern not just Israel, but all the nations. And this is a big part of theonomy in understanding the Great Commission, is that when we disciple nations, we are to teach them God's law and bring them under its authority. So I guess when, when I think through this issue, I, w- I would ask the question, how, how, how do we disprove things? That I think that's really something that's really important when you're trying to work through issues is one of the questions in logical thinking is you ask, how would I falsify this? Or how would I disprove this? Right. And I think that's good to be thinking that way about anything, not just to be a negative person, but just to think clearly, okay, what, what would it take for this statement not to be true? And I think one of the ways uh, in which we could talk about this is simply look at when there is opportunity for the Mosaic law to apply to non-Israelites. Is that applied to non-Israelites? Or is it that God and the Israelites do not expect non-Israelites to obey the Mosaic law in its entirety and exhaustive detail? Now, 
let's let's speak with clarity here. There are certain principles and applications of the Mosaic law which reveal something about God's character or his his design for creation, right? I mean, something like thou shall not murder. The reason that's part of Israel's law code is because mankind has made it God's image, but it's not wrong to murder because it's in the Mosaic law. It's wrong to murder because man is made in God's image and to take life needlessly um, without authorization is, is wrong on all accounts. And so that's why it's wrong. It's not wrong because it's found in the law. And we even know that that is wrong apart from the law, right? So it's not as if Cain was surprised when God told uh, told him, yeah, you really should not have killed Abel. It wasn't as if Cain just, you know, turned around and said, wow, I had no way of knowing that God. You know, you did not give the Mosaic law yet, right? So the point being that there are certain things that the Gentiles are held accountable to as well, that, that may or may not find parallels in the Mosaic law, right? Of course. But the real question is, as its entirety was the Mosaic law meant to apply or to be authoritative for non-Israelites? That's the question. And so we we can see narratives and we can see indication in the law itself that it that it was not, right? So if we in a I'm speaking we as a theonomist here. I'm not a theonomist, but I'm I'm identifying as a theonomist for a moment. Uh if 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 a theonomist in, in a theonomist circle says, okay, well, we, we must hold all men to be accountable to the Mosaic law standard, uh, not, and, and it, it needs to be considered binding. So again, we are, we are mandating through the laws that we pass that they must, uh, you know, submit to these principles in, in the ways we deem as, as essential. Is that is that right? Is that correct? And I, I would argue that when we go through some of these narratives and look through them, that that's not the indication we get at all. And so I, I say there's three narratives and a couple indications in the law that this is not the case. So the first example I would give would be in Second Kings 5, we are, we are told about a story about a man named Naaman. So 2 Kings 5, Naaman is from Syria. So he's Gentile of Gentiles, right? Syria is a archenemy of uh, Israel and Judah throughout their history. And so Naaman's the commander of the army of the king of Syria. And so he actually has captured and carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she is, you know, his servant. And so he has leprosy. And this little girl tells him that, oh, I wish you could go to Israel because there's a prophet there that, that would be able to help you. So Naaman takes the appropriate steps to find Elisha. And when he finds Elisha, he asks him, what do I need to do? Elisha says, okay, go dip in the Jordan River. And Naaman initially isn't too pumped about that in 2 Kings 5. He says, wow, we have way better rivers in Damascus. But his servants say, hey, you know what? If it was about clean water, uh, then yeah, but is it about clean water? Maybe we should just do what he says. And so they do what he says. And lo and behold, uh, after dipping seven times in the river, then Naaman is healed. So now he, this is where it gets interesting. Okay. Because what's going to happen? Naaman knows that God is special. Now he knows that the God of Israel is, is amazing. And so he says in verse 15, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. So in other words, okay, he's making a profession of, I know that the God of Israel is the only God. 
And what's interesting is that, you know, Elisha says, no, I'm not going to take your gifts. And so then Naaman says, okay, well, can I at least have some dirt? <laughs> and uh, so he ends up taking some dirt, which is kind of an interesting uh, thought process in and of itself, uh, which more could be said about. But but here's, here's what I want to zero in on is in verse 17, uh, he, he starts to, to think about, okay, well, let me take some dirt so that I can, so that I can worship, uh, the God of Israel, because I want part of Israel, um, with me so that I can worship this God. And then in verse 18, he says, in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes to the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon, when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And then in verse 19, Elisha says to him, go in peace. Now, what's interesting about this is Elisha gives him the go ahead, right? He says, yeah, that's fine. Um, but obviously, if, if you think about the law and what the law says, the law specifically forbids bowing down um, before other gods, right? So that is the letter of the law. And in fact, there are very stringent details that if uh, your countrymen are trying to seduce you going uh, before other gods, even if a prophet tells you to do that, uh, Deuteronomy 13, you do not follow him, you don't listen to him. And so it's interesting that Naaman is basically saying, listen, I'm going to be a fish out of water in Syria. And when my master needs me to go worship the God, I'm going to go with him. I'm going to help him worship that God. I just beg your pardon for that. Now, can you imagine if this was an Israelite who was saying this, right? Uh, an Israelite who would say, you know what? I'm just going to go help a bunch of other people um, bow down to their gods and worship them. Is that okay? Well, obviously not. The law for, forbade that kind of thing, right? And so for, I think that this is, this is important because Elisha obviously is giving him the thumbs up saying, go in peace. Like this is okay. Elisha doesn't say, you know, no, you need to take a stand on this issue. The law is very clear on this. Now, again, somebody might just say, well, yeah, maybe this is an exceptional circumstance. Okay. You could argue that it's obviously exceptional, but it's exceptional probably in the sense that, uh, he's a Gentile in Syria that has declared allegiance to Yahweh. So I think it's worth thinking about and pondering. Um, notice Elisha isn't holding him to the, to the Mosaic law standard. He's allowing Naaman to, you know, uh, to basically participate in the worship of this God, uh, helping his master. Right. And so I think it's interesting to consider that that's, that always perplexed me, um, reading it because it, it definitely seems like he's saved that he's declaring allegiance to Yahweh. And yet he is also helping his master participate in this worship of Ramon. And so obviously the law does not speak highly about that. And so we need to, I think, minimally acknowledge that there is something exceptional going on here. And I would argue that part of it has to certainly has to certainly be related to the fact that he is a Gentile and not Israelite. Well, there are two other narratives which are very similar, and that's in Daniel 3 and Daniel 4. Now, Daniel 3 and Daniel 4 are Daniel and his friends, in, and uh, in Daniel 3, the three friends uh, are thrown into a fiery furnace, and they, they do so because they refuse to worship uh, at the statue. So interesting, uh, if you parallel the two texts, it's kind of fascinating that uh, you would 
kind of expect if it, if it was just the same thing, um, an exceptional circumstance, why, why couldn't um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, why couldn't they bow down before this God um, if their heart didn't really want to, but it was just part of what their master was demanding of them, etc.? Well, it seems it seems like there's something different here that they they acknowledge. Okay, the law of God, you know, is very clear on this issue. We can't we can't do this. But what's interesting, and what I want to point out, is that when Nebuchadnezzar understands what happened, uh, and now by the way, I mean it's it's kind of obvious if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go into the fiery furnace, and they come out just unhinged. I mean, this was an execution gone wrong, right? Okay, let's not beat around the bush. This is this is uh, an attempted execution for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, in fact, the guards that threw them in the furnace did die. So this was supposed to be their death, and it was supposed to appease the wrath of Nebuchadnezzar. But they come out, and they come out not even smelling like smoke, right? And so that just baffles everybody. So if there was ever a time where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could say, now, this is what you need to know, Nebuchadnezzar, is that you need to submit to the Mosaic law. You need to submit to everything that's written in the law and, and you know, observe these stipulations. That's what God demands of you. But not only do they not say that, now, of course, the text could be jumping over that fact. Somebody could argue, well, maybe they did say that. Well, but notice how Nebuchadnezzar answers and he sends a proclamation to all the people. It says this in, in verse 28 of chapter 3, says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Now, notice what Nebuchadnezzar does is he doesn't say, um, okay, everyone needs to worship God alone. But he says, therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb in their houses in ruins. Now, there is a difference here. He doesn't say we can only worship the God of Israel, but he says nobody can speak evil against this God because he's, he's powerful. He, he's the real deal. Um, in fact, he says that at the end of the verse, he says, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. So he recognizes the specialness of Yahweh, but he doesn't declare exclusivity to the nation. Now, somebody could could answer and just say, well, Nebuchadnezzar was wrong here. He should have declared exclusivity in worship of Yahweh. But, you know, again, admittedly, these narratives don't have all the details, right? Uh, but I think uh, the, the point of the text as we read it is that this this is just amazing display of God's power. And, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, it seems, uh, just on the surface reading of the text, didn't press Nebuchadnezzar saying you need to you need to abandon, you need to make sure that, you know, you pass laws so that only the God of Israel is worshipped. No, no kind of indication like that. Uh it seems like that would be a opportune moment to make such a declaration since your God just showed that he is the most amazing God of all gods. Literally, Nebuchadnezzar says there is no other God who can do this, right? I mean, if you think about it, uh, you're basically, this is the best time to make any kind of assertion or, or ask for anything because the king just literally tried to kill you. So the king's not going to be doing that again. He's, he's going to say, well, they're, they're untouchable. I can't kill these guys. So anything they ask for, we should, we should grant them. So in one sense, I think that, again, 
these narratives are not decisive. I acknowledge that. But I think it's just good to think through these things where these are very strong examples of Gentile interaction and there's no attempt to persuade them to submit to the Mosaic law. I think that that's important. Same thing with Daniel 4. So in Daniel 4, you have Nebuchadnezzar having a dream and Daniel interprets the dream for him. And notice even what Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar in verse 27. He doesn't say, you know, you need to you know, submit your heart to the law of Moses. But what he does say is, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. In other words, he's telling the king that you need to stop doing what is wrong, sinning, and start doing what is right. Now, again, what is right is not only defined by the Mosaic law. Now, the Mosaic law does talk about uh, showing mercy to the oppressed, and it does talk about practicing righteousness, right? But it's not only defined by that. As Romans talks about, there, you the Gentiles, when they do what is right by nature, do so because it is written on their hearts, right? So there is such a thing as as conscience and that God has revealed what is what is right and wrong. And so there is an aspect of of understanding those aspects even outside the Mosaic law. But notice that Daniel does not say this is what you know you need to do, submit to the law of Moses, offer sacrifices to Yahweh, things like that. Uh, and again, Somebody I know could just say, well, maybe Daniel would say that it's just an abbreviated account. I acknowledge that. Okay. That's a possibility. That's why I'm not saying that these are conclusive. I'm just throwing this out there where the, the best illustrations we have of, of Jews and Gentiles interacting, um, we don't have the Jews telling Gentiles that they need to become Jews and submit to the Mosaic law. That's, that's just not the case. So those are three narratives, which I think help us paint the picture of what uh, how Gentiles were expected to live or, or just even like what, what laws or, or rules govern them. And I don't think we could say it was the Mosaic law. Now here's the best argument though. Okay. So those are narratives, which you could just give illustration, but I think the best illustration of this is actually the law itself. Okay. So the law itself actually has laws on the books as it were for the sojourner. Okay, so the sojourner is the one who is not a native Israelite, but he's traveling or sojourning in the land of Israel. Uh, Some people don't realize, but when Israel came out of Egypt itself, there were many Egyptians who accompanied them. And because of Israel's success or even just because of proximity, there were people from among the nations who joined themselves to Israel. They were the sojourners. And so the sojourners were accompanying Israel, they were included in the law of God. And so maybe the best example is the Sabbath law. In Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, uh, this is one of the Ten Commandments, right? So remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. So notice what uh, is applied here to the sojourner is the Sabbath rest. So there are certain things that the sojourner uh, must apply. 
Now, there are other laws too. In fact, I didn't include all of them, but as I was just glancing through the uses of sojourner in the law, there are lots of laws that are applied to the sojourner. And in fact, there are some laws which say it will be alike one law for the native and the sojourner in your midst. So there are many, many laws that say, hey, the sojourner who's with you, he also needs to keep this law, okay? As part of his sojourning with you, he needs to obey this stipulation. He needs to obey this law. But the kicker is that the law does not bind the sojourner to every single law that it binds the native Israelite to, okay? So let let me say that again. The non-native Israelite who sojourned with the people of Israel did not need to follow all the same laws that the Israelite did. There were exceptions, okay? This is built into the law. It's, it's, it's obvious, right? So one of those differences is Deuteronomy 14.21, okay? So Deuteronomy 14.21, it says, you shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. So in other words, now now this is more significant if you really do realize that that the sojourner was bound by many, many laws in the uh, Old Testament covenant. Okay, we'll talk more about that in a second. So if you decided you wanted to live in proximity to Israel and live with them, you were bound by a lot of laws. But here you have very specific differences, right? And the Deuteronomy 14.21 says, you know, you as Israel do not eat anything that has died naturally, but go ahead and give it to the sojourner. He can eat that. That's Deuteronomy 14.21. Okay. So think about the obvious implication of this. So we have a law that applies to an ethnic Israelite but it does not apply to a sojourner, okay? Somebody who is not Israelite. Okay, so very clearly the Mosaic law here is differentiated between the native Israelite and the sojourner. And that, that happens, right? And this, this comes up throughout the law, right? There are many, many differences. In fact, as a part of the covenant curses in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 2843, we, we read that the and the context here is when Israel sins, what's going to happen? You know, you're going to go out to reap and you're not going to reap anything. The locusts are going to come destroy everything. These are the curses that come. And one of the curses is, quote, Deuteronomy 28, 43, quote, the sojourner who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you and you shall come down lower and lower. So that's one of the curses is that, and the idea of sojourning is that, uh, you know, it's, it's like an exile or, or an immigrant. Somebody is, is trying to add themselves, uh, kind of <laughs> leech off the nation of Israel. They, they like, Hey, I like it here. There's some, some benefit. The land is nice. The people are nice. I'm, I'm going to really benefit from this. And so, so they come and they're benefiting. But the, the ir- irony is that for the covenant curse, you're going to actually, the nation of Israel is going to go lower and lower, but the sojourner is going to grow and grow and become more and more. And so that's, that there is a difference um, with regard to the ethnicity of an Israelite versus the Gentile sojourner. And one more, which I think is, is really important as well, is with regard to the Passover. Okay. So the sojourner with Israel uh, in Exodus 12 is given a special set of instructions. And so this is from the ESV again, as I normally quote. So if a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, 
So if a, if a stranger wants to keep the Passover of the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. Now, just to get the implication of this, I, I took uh, Nahum Sarna in the Jewish Publication Society Torah commentary series. He wrote the Exodus commentary. And I took his little paragraph on this because I think it's so pertinent because he recognizes what just comes from a straightforward reading of the text is that the sojourner was not obligated to keep the Passover, but he certainly could. And if he did, then he would be governed by other stipulations. But the Israelite was mandated to keep the Passover. Okay. So this is what uh, Sarna says in his JPS Torah commentary. He says, these instructions relate unmistakably to the situation envisaged in verse 25, which is uh, dealing with keeping the Passover. The stranger in Israel enjoyed numerous rights and privileges, such as the benefits of the Sabbath rest, the protection afforded by the cities of refuge, and access to a share of certain tithes and to the produce of the sabbatical year. He could offer sacrifices if he so pleased and could even participate in religious festivals. He was also obligated to refrain from certain actions that undermined the social, moral, and spiritual well-being of the dominant society, such as immorality, idolatry, blasphemy, and consumption of blood. Now, notice what Sarna is saying here is he's, he's saying, listen, all, if you go through the law code, it's obvious that the sojourner was bound by certain stipulations, which would cause qu- quite a bit of mayhem if this sojourner just did whatever he wanted. And so, of course, he was bound by certain laws. But now Sarna goes on and he says, he was not required to celebrate the Passover. But if he desired to do so and thus identify himself and his family with the national experience of Israel, he had to first submit to circumcision. Having done so, no discrimination between him and the citizen was allowed. Just like an uncircumcised non-Israelite, so an uncircumcised Israelite also was excluded. So notice what Sarna is saying is that, okay, the, the sojourner was certainly held to many, many of the, of the laws and standards. Uh, and that, that would be expected because you couldn't just allow rampant immorality or anything like that. But there are differences. There are differences. And so it's, it's incorrect again, to say that the, that the Gentiles were obligated to keep the Mosaic law or to keep, uh, the laws that was revealed through the, the Mosaic covenant on Sinai or by Moses on the plains of Moab in Deuteronomy. There are obvious differences. So just looking at, at the law itself, as well as some of the narratives of, of famous Jew Gentile interaction, I think it's, it's pretty difficult to argue that the Mosaic law in its exhaustive detail is supposed to be binding on the nations. Right. And because that's, that's the, one of the main arguments of theonomy, that's why we're pushing it here. Right. Is that if you just look at the details themselves, it's very, very difficult to argue that the law was meant to be binding on the nations. Now, I, I should say, because I think it's helpful and it goes back to the question that, that was asked at the beginning of the episode, is that that doesn't mean that the law isn't applicable. And that doesn't mean that even when nations, Gentile nations, are constructing laws for societies, that they can't or shouldn't uh, consult 
the Mosaic law. Uh, I think that's, that's wise. I think that would be, that would be a really healthy thing to do. And, and I love the law. It gives such great principles of justice and things like that. And so that would be very wise. But the, the issue here is binding in, in authority and letter, not in principle. Right. Uh, and so, so the issue is how are these principles going to be applied? Um, are we going to make a law that says you must give $100 of cash to anybody in such and such a situation or whatever? Well, obviously that would be an incorrect application of the law. And so we need to, we need to think about uh, these things rationally, holistically. And I think if we just let the law speak for itself, we compare the narratives. I think it's, it's, very difficult to say that the Mosaic law was meant to be governing for Gentiles. Uh, it was meant to be governing for Israelites. And that's, that's what we see. But again, part of the presuppositions, the reason why people are so adamant about this is because they connect the Mosaic law with some, with a, with, with God's law, with, with a moral standard of right and wrong. And it's not, there are certainly right and wrong um, and moral standards that are in, imbibed in the law itself. That is certainly true, but it is not true that every single law in the Mosaic covenant, in the Mosaic law, is meant to be communicating a standard like that. And so that's why whole, it's meant to be viewed holistic and not just a uh, give and take approach. Okay, hopefully that's at least somewhat helpful. And obviously we'll we'll keep talking about some of these issues here or there, but I think uh, I think we've talked quite a bit about the law and some of the problems that theonomy has. I think there's at least one more thing that's on my mind to talk about with regard to theonomy and the law, but hopefully this continues our thought process. As always, you can reach out to me through the contact form on my website. You can look at the blog articles I've written there. I've written quite a few on the law that you can find in the archives there. If you're interested in Shepherd's Theological Seminary, you can go to shepherds.edu. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.